So uh, you can see the globe there on the right side. That was built for the World's Fair in 1964, and it's still there today. Uh, but for one weekend, this gigantic 93-acre parcel of land was transformed into the world's biggest evangelistic arena. Now, at the time, I had only been a Christian for about a year or two. Uh, Brian was a baby, and Allie was about five years old. Uh, we were sitting right there. I think you can see the back of our heads right there. That's where we were. <laughs> so we were sitting there watching Billy Graham preach. And as Billy Graham preached, uh, the Holy Spirit moved in Allie's heart. Uh, and she went forward and accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as her Savior at that time. And I walked with her as the choir sang, uh, Just As I Am. If you've ever seen a Billy Graham crusade, you know that's the call. Uh, and she went up, she went forward, and I went with her. And I was a very, very proud papa. Well, of course, Billy Graham preached the gospel in English, right? Uh, but there were hundreds of different language groups and cultures represented, as you would expect, in New York City. So that meant the need for lots of interpreters and lots of volunteers. So after Billy Graham proclaimed the gospel, we would see volunteers like this flooding the crowd, uh, explaining the gospel, interpreting the word, answering questions, distributing materials, uh, taking contact information so that they could follow up with people uh, so that people had a full opportunity uh, to hear and understand the gospel. And the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association estimates that 242,000 people heard the gospel uh, that weekend, and 9,400 people uh, received Christ as their Lord and Savior. So uh, it was a modern-day revival, and as I said, the last one of these that Billy Graham ever did. So it was really special for us to be there. Uh, but Billy Graham used a tried-and-true formula uh, for evangelism, a proclamation, proclaiming the word, uh, explanation, explaining the word, a comprehension, the people understand the word that is being preached, and then a response. So you have this, this uh, tried and true method, proclamation, explanation, comprehension, and response. And you can find this same formula uh, used in Nehemiah, uh, uh, Nehemiah chapter 8. Uh, so as we go through, we'll see that Ezra, Ezra uh, got up to preach and he proclaimed the word. And then we had people going through the crowd explaining the word and people understanding the word were convicted by uh, the words that Ezra spoke. And then they responded to the word. They believed it and they applied it to their lives. And this is what I do every Sunday when I get up to preach. I pray, just like I'm sure Billy Graham prayed at the night of that crusade, just like I'm sure Nehemiah prayed and Ezra prayed 2,500 years ago, uh, that I would proclaim the word of God clearly, uh, that I would explain it accurately, uh, that by the Holy Spirit's power we would all understand uh, what the Lord is saying, and that we would respond accurately, and then that we would apply it to our lives fully. And that's what good preaching is, really. If you hear good preaching, uh, it's not bells and whistles. It's just the word proclaimed, explained, understood, and applied. Uh, so that's what we try to do here every weekend. So uh, you'll recall from last week, we were in Nehemiah chapter 6. Uh, and in Nehemiah 6, Nehemiah had just completed the wall, and he had installed the gates, and he had positioned the guards to protect the people uh, from any people who would want to come in and do damage. And that took us through chapter 7, uh, verse 4. Now, the rest of chapter 7, which we're skipping over, is just a long roster uh, that, uh, that lists the name of all the people who came back, uh, returning from exile in Babylon, all the way to dating back to Zerubbabel 100 years earlier. 
uh, through the present. So we'll, we'll skip over that and we're going to pick up today in verse 773 and we'll finish chapter 8. And so this week we'll talk about the word preached and explained in verses 1 to 8, uh, the people's joyous response in verses 9 through 12, and then the people's application of the law to their lives. So we'll start in verses 1 to 8. Now, uh, Dick was good enough to fall on that grenade for me and read all those names. <laughs> so I am not going to read those names again. Uh, I'm going to trust that you all uh, heard, uh, understood, and will apply those verses to your lives. Uh, so after Nehemiah uh, listed all the people who returned in chapter 7, uh, he says in 773 that they all went to their hometown, right? So uh, they went to their hometown because though the wall was built, the houses and the city were not yet built. Uh, so it was just kind of a, a wall with some stuff inside the wall, but, but not anything that you could live in. Uh, so last week we learned that uh, the, the wall was completed in the month of Elul, E-L-U-L. -L. That's the sixth month on the Hebrew calendar. And so now we come to the month of Tishri, which is the seventh month on the Hebrew calendar. And so now they're all, uh, they went home in the sixth month. Now they're coming back again to gather again in the seventh month of Tishri. And they gathered uh, at the square near the water gate. Now this month of Tishri was a very important month on the Hebrew calendar because in day one they celebrated the Feast of Trumpets, the first day of Tishri. Uh, and that's a month where they would blow trumpets and give glory to God for his provision. And then day 10 was the Day of Atonement uh, where they would mourn their sin. Uh, the high priest would go and uh, sacrifice blood uh, for, given on behalf of the people for their sin. And then day 15 to 22 was the Feast of Tabernacles also known as the Feast of Booths, also known as the Feast of Ingathering. I'll talk more about that later, uh, where they celebrated uh, the, the harvest and then also where they celebrated the fact that God had brought, him, brought these people uh, through the exodus and the wilderness wanderings uh, into the promised land. So here they are. It's the first day of Tishri. They gather together at the water gate. Now, the water gate was on the east side of the Jerusalem wall over here, uh, if we had a full picture, this would be the Kidron Valley, and over here would be the Mount of Olives. So you would look at it from the east, uh, looking from the east, you would be looking onto the water gate uh, like that. Uh, so <clears throat> it's this first day of Tishri. So they ask Ezra to come and read the book of the law. Now, we were introduced to Ezra, you may recall, all the way back in Ezra chapter 7. Uh, Ezra came to Jerusalem with the second wave of exiles. Remember, Zerubbabel came with the first wave of exiles in 538 BC, and that covered Ezra 1 through 6. Then in Ezra chapter 7, we were introduced to Ezra, who probably wrote the book. So he came with the second wave of exiles in 458 BC. So now, uh, present day, it's 444 BC. 14 years have passed. 14 years ago, Ezra led this revival uh, that resulted in all the mixed marriages being dissolved and the rededication of the people to the Lord. So Ezra and Nehemiah are contemporaries. We don't hear of anything about Ezra until here, uh, this part of Nehemiah. But now his role becomes important again, as uh, 14 years later, Ezra, who was a priest and who was a scribe, uh, led another spiritual revival. Now, Moses commanded that the law in full be read every seven years. Uh, Deuteronomy, in fact, says this. Uh, then Moses commanded them, saying, At the end of every seven years, at the time of the year of the remission of debts, at the Feast of Booths, that's where we are right now, the month of the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place which he will choose, you shall read this law in front of all of Israel in their hearing. 
So here we are in the month of Tishri, and how, uh, Tishri, how convenient then uh, that Ezra should stand up and read the law. And everyone who was old enough to understand gathered to hear the word of the law read. He read from early morning, it says. Uh, literally, that means uh, from the light until midday. So we're talking six hours or so of reading the law. And uh, what's ama uh, amazing to me is that the people stood. They stood there for six hours and they listened to the word of the Lord proclaimed out of respect for God's word. And so Ezra, they had built a, a platform or a podium for this very purpose so he could stand up there, read the law, uh, and be heard. Remember, there's no amplification. There's no microphones. He, he's got he's to read loud and the people have to listen. Uh, but he did that for six hours. Now, I can remember being a kid in church. Uh, I couldn't pay attention for six minutes, right? That's how it was when we were kids. Uh, but I think the difference is spiritual appetite, spiritual hunger. Uh, these people were hungry for the word. Uh, these exiles who returned had overcome all of these challenges from their very many enemies who tried to stop them from building this wall. And these people had seen God in action, not only in allowing them to return, but allowing them to overcome their enemies and build this wall. And what a response from the people. They all raise their hands and say, amen, amen. And then they bow down before the Lord in a, a position of humility and submission. So the people responded well. And think about Ezra's faith. I mean, he's up there. Uh, he's the one doing all the speaking, reading. Can you imagine from uh, Genesis and then uh, from Exodus and then from Numbers and uh, from Leviticus, then Numbers and then Deuteronomy, trying to read for six hours. Uh, how would you all like it if I stood up here and did that and said you had to stay here for six hours and listen to me read from the Pentateuch? Uh, I think that would be a hard ask, right? But these were people who are uh, this was new to them, it was fresh to them, and they had spiritual hunger and spiritual appetites. And as they're preaching, uh, as Ezra's up there preaching, reading from the Word of God, uh, the Levites are going through the crowd, just like those volunteers at the Billy Graham crusade, explaining, interpreting uh, the Word. Now, these Levites were very important people. Uh, the Levites are descendants of Levi, one of, uh, one of Jacob's 12 sons. Uh, and so what we learn as we read the Bible is that uh, <clears throat> all the priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests. Uh, over time, after uh, Aaron and Moses came uh, and God gave the law through Moses, uh, it was determined that, that the line of the priesthood would carry on through Aaron. So the priests were Aaron's descendants, even though the Levites um, uh, were, were, they were descendants of Levi. So the, the priesthood, their responsibility was to, to fulfill the most sacred roles, the offering of the sacrifices and things like that. The Levites had important roles, uh, but less sacred. They were more servants. But here, uh, their service was instrumental to this revival because they were the ones uh, interpreting to people who didn't know the language, who didn't know Hebrew, and explaining what Ezra was leading, uh, reading to them. So uh, these Levites interpreted the word, explained the word so that people could understand. Now, understanding, of course, is the key to response, right? You can't respond to what you don't understand. And so uh, that's why the people were going through the crowd explaining. And that's why we are an expository preaching Bible church. We're not interested in the latest internet guru or what the New York Times has to say or what Oprah has to say, right? We're not even interested in what other churches have to say if they're not preaching from the word of God. 
because we know that you can follow a crowd, but oftentimes the crowd will lead, lead you right off a cliff, right? So we want to be very careful uh, who we're following. We want to be sure we're grounded in the word of God. And so we want to know and understand what God says, not what other people think. And so that's why in this church, we follow Ezra's model. Ezra read, uh, the Levites explained, the people understood, and they responded. So let's talk about their response in verses 9 to 12. Then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra the priest and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. And Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the, Lord, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food, and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. Well, when you've just heard the word of the Lord uh, and been convicted by sin, the natural result is to mourn, right? Jesus talked about this in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Uh, he wasn't talking about mourning death. He was talking about mourning sin. And so one way we know that we have been convicted and that we become Christians is that when we sin, uh, it bothers us and we want to repent of it. We don't want to live in that way anymore. Uh, we want to live lives pleasing to the Lord. So we would commend the people that Ezra was preaching to for their, uh, for their sadness, for their repentance and their desire uh, to live God's way. Uh, but even though uh, they, were, they were repenting of sin, Nehemiah and Ezra say to them, this is a day of joy. Uh, let's rejoice this day. Now, we have to remember that, that this is before Pentecost, right? The Holy Spirit had not yet come to indwell people yet, to live inside of people who receive Jesus as Savior. But the Holy Spirit is still active, even at this time, in convicting people of sin and causing people to repent. Uh, so that's what the Holy Spirit was doing. But Ezra and Nehemiah were saying, look, this is not a time for mourning, although it's good to mourn sin. Uh, the Feast of Trumpets was a day of joy. It's a day of celebration. Uh, and so according to Leviticus, it was a day to do no work, a sacred day before the Lord set apart for God. So after Ezra finished explain, or reading the law and the Levites had finished explaining it, now Nehemiah gets up and he encourages the people and, and he says to them, uh, do not grieve, do not weep, do not mourn. Three times he gives them that exhortation. Instead he says, uh, enjoy, have joy. And so Nehemiah encourages them, the joy of the Lord is our strength. And Nehemiah also encouraged them to share with those who did not have anything prepared. That means who don't have any food. So we understand as Christians that there is a very strong link between joy as Christians and generosity, right? They ought to go hand in hand. When we understand how gracious and how generous God is in, in providing for us, uh, out of the overflow of, of gracious or gratitude in our hearts to what God has done, that should spill over. That generosity and joy should spill over to other people. We should want to share that joy with others. We give from a heart filled with joy, and our giving produces even more joy as we know that we are meeting needs. Well, these people, they went away to eat and drink and to do just what they said, to share with others. Now, why would they do that? Why would they share with others? Well, it says because now they understood the words that were spoken to them. 
And what is it that they understood? Well, they understood now uh, this, this God of grace that they may not have understood fully before. Uh, they understood that, that they were all sinners, and we'll dive into this in greater detail next week. But they learned that God is a God of infinite grace. Uh, God brought them back from exile. He helped them rebuild the wall, and, and now he's, he's, he's going to help them rebuild the city, and they wanted to worship this God of grace. Now, Nehemiah, of course, lived before the cross. On our side of the cross, infinite grace means grace that has no limits, right? Grace that has no end. It's inexhaustible grace. It's the grace that the Lord Jesus Christ showed when he went to the cross, never once having sinned, uh, to pay even for the sin of the very people who were crucifying him. And then while on the cross, he said to God the Father, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. When we come to the table each week for communion, we celebrate the Lord's Supper here every week, when we do that, we should approach it with a deep sense of mourning because we understand that it is our sin that put Jesus Christ on the cross. Uh, so on the one hand, we should mourn our sin, but on the other hand, we should be people, uh, the most joyous people alive because uh, we know that Jesus provided his body as a sacrifice for us. And in the upper room, uh, when Jesus knew that he was going away, he said to his disciples, these words that I have spoken to you, I have spoken so that you may have my joy and that your joy may be full. So it's right to mourn our sin, but it's also right to rejoice when we come to the communion table. We should overflow with joy at the prospect of God and providing a savior for us uh, and the indwelling Holy Spirit and the joy that we get to live uh, in this world today and the promise of heaven to come. Because Jesus has paid our sin debt. Our account, our account is marked paid in full if we have received the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. And that means we acknowledge that we are sinners and that we can't do anything to earn our place in heaven. We have to own the wretchedness of our own sin. And our sin disqualifies us from heaven, but God has provided a way for each one of us uh, to go to heaven by sending Jesus uh, to live a perfect, sinless life and then taking the punishment that we deserve on our behalf on the cross. And when we believe in him, God charges our sin debt to him and gives his righteousness to us in what we call the great exchange. And when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin, he sees his son. And that's the best deal that you're ever going to get, uh, ladies and gentlemen. You cannot get a better deal than that. And that's why we rejoice every week when we come to the table. So uh, that's now. Back then, after people heard the word, uh, they understood the word, they responded with joy, and then they took care to obey all that was written in the law. So let's look at verses 13 through 18. On the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered around Ezra the teacher to give attention to the words of the law. And they found written in the law, which the law had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in temporary shelters during the festival of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out into the hill country and bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees and from myrtles, palms, and shade trees to make temporary shelters as it is written. So, the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves temporary shelters on their own roofs, in their courtyards, in the courts of the house of God, and in the square by the water gate and the one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had returned from exile built temporary shelters and lived in them. From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, 
the Israelites had not celebrated it like this. And their joy was very great. Day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. They celebrated the festival for seven days, and on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly. So they're hearing the word. They're understanding the word. Now, understanding happens on at least two levels, right? Uh, there's basic comprehension of the words communicated. Uh, if Molly says to me, the garbage men are coming tomorrow, uh, I have no problem understanding the words, and that probably tomorrow morning sometime, the garbage men are going to roll down my alley. Uh, but she's not really telling me that for information, is she? She's telling me that to move me to action. She's saying, take the garbage cans out. So it's one thing to have basic comprehension, but it's another thing to let the words sink in so that we respond properly. So Ezra read this law on the first day of this month of Tishri. Now on the second day, they're still hungry for more. Ezra, more, give us more, give us more. So they gathered around Ezra for more teaching. They had an insatiable appetite to know the Lord better. And so Ezra continued to read to them. And providentially, uh, they come upon the very words that uh, would, would tell them to observe this Feast of Tabernacles. So the Feast of Tabernacles, as I said, is a two-pronged feast. There are two things going on here. It was a feast to thank God for the harvest on the one hand and also uh, to remember his provision during the Exodus and the wilderness wanderings. And, and both of those commands are found in Leviticus chapter 23. So it's called the Feast of Ingathering because they had just gathered the harvest, right? And so it was a time to celebrate God's provision. And they had been celebrating that part. We've even read about that in Ezra chapter 3. They celebrated the Feast of Ingathering. They did it during Solomon's Day and at other times in their history. But it was also called the Feast of Tabernacles or booths uh, because Leviticus chapter 23 also commanded that during this week, uh, this feast week, they were supposed to build temporary shelters, also known as booths or tabernacles, uh, where they would live for a week. Uh, and that would commemorate, again, their time of the wilderness wandering when that's how they lived uh, for those years. So uh, the word here says that they had not celebrated that part of the feast, uh, not like that, since the days of Joshua, son of Nun. That's a thousand years earlier. Uh, but that was about to change. So the people go out into the hill country. The hill country is much more populated with trees and, and places where you could gather wood and leaves to build uh, uh, booths or temporary shelters from. So they built them on their roofs. They built them in the courtyards. They built them uh, in the courts of the temple. Uh, they built them everywhere. And here are what, a couple of examples of what a, a booth might look like. Uh, depending on the materials available to the builder and the skill that the builder had, they could be very elaborate or they could be just you know, a bunch of sticks uh, tied, to, tied together to, to make a, a little shelter. Uh, but this is what they would do. They would build these things and they would live in them for a week. And so we see that the people responded. They wanted to fulfill all the parts of the law. They responded with obedience. But it wasn't just dutiful obedience out of obligation. This was joyful obedience, right? They were eager, happy to obey the word of the Lord. Day after day, uh, Ezra read to them throughout the days of the feast, and day after day, uh, the people responded with joy. And then on the last day of the feast, the word says that there was an assembly, uh, which we're going to discuss next week, because that is Ezra, or, uh, Nehemiah chapter 9. So at this point, it's really a good time to consider all that these returning exiles had been through, all they'd overcome in the book of Nehemiah so far. They, they had opposition from uh, Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and all the others who were trying to destroy them and, and, and hinder their work from the outside. 
And then from the inside, they were dealing with the, with the, the wealthy uh, nobles who were charging them interest, which was unlawful uh, according to the Jewish law. Uh, so illegal and unethical business practices. They had shoddy materials. They had inexperienced workers. They had to work long hours in the hot sun while they were not tending to their own fields so that they could generate their own income. So they were hungry. And not only that, but Nehemiah had to lead the people while trying to avoid assassination attempts against his life by the very people who were supposed to be his allies, the priests and the prophets. And yet with God's help, uh, and Nehemiah and the people overcame all human opposition that Satan could throw at them. So after all of that confrontation with people, uh, the, the people on the outside, the people on the inside, now in chapter 8, they face even more confrontation. But this time, the confrontation comes from God himself. Ezra read the word to the people. And God's word is meant to be a confrontation. He confronts us with his word. Sometimes the word acts like a sword. It convicts us and challenges us. Sometimes it pierces us like a scalpel, cutting the sin out of our lives that God wants removed from our lives. Sometimes it works like a healing bomb to exhort us uh, to live his way and obey his commands. And sometimes it acts as an encouragement to us so that we'll continue on even when times are, tr uh, when times are hard, that there will be comfort. And that's what hearing God's word did for these people, uh, these returning exiles. So they, they had the word proclaimed, they had the word explained, they understood the word, and they responded with great joy. Uh, the word of God demands a response. Let's close with a couple of applications. Uh, the first one is this. Have we been confronted by God's word? Remember that many of these families of returning exiles uh, probably uh, had lived in Babylon their entire lives, right? Most of them weren't familiar with the law of Moses. Many of them didn't even speak Hebrew anymore. And so when Ezra read the law to them, uh, their eyes were open, sometimes among many of them, I bet even for the first time, about the glory and the holiness of God. So as Ezra continued to read to them, the word of God confronted them on every page. Uh, and though he confronted them, he also comforts them with his goodness and love. So one thing we can learn from Nehemiah 8 is that the word of God transforms lives. It changes lives. Now, you and I, I don't want to speak for all of us, but, but I wonder if we take for granted the access that we have to the Bible. You know, they needed the scriptures read, interpreted, explained, and then they needed to be told what to do. Most of us probably have 10 Bibles in our own homes, at least, in English, right, in our own language. Uh, do we take that for granted? And we also have the indwelling Holy Spirit who lives inside of us if we're Christians. And so we have tremendous advantages. Uh, God intended his word for everyone, uh, and he wants us to read it and be changed by it. And so if we are reading it, uh, then we are allowing God to confront us, and we're allowing him to change us into the image of his son Jesus. But if we're ignoring God's word, then we're essentially saying to God, I'm content where I am in my spiritual walk, and I don't think I need any further confrontation or any change in my life. Well, we should never be satisfied with where we are spiritually. We should allow the word of God to confront us because we always have room for growth. So have we been confronted by God's word? And second, have we been comforted by God's word? The Bible does confront us, but it's also God's revelation of his grace to us. And sometimes we need confrontation because we think, well, maybe our sin isn't that bad or everyone's doing it or whatever. Uh, but we need to be confronted with our sin, but we also need God's comfort. 
God's grace oozes off of every single page of the Bible, and he makes his love evident for us in providing for our basic needs, uh, for providing a savior for us, and for promising us uh, eternal joy, and for being with us when we are in difficult times of trouble. So uh, the Bible comforts us through all of life's difficulties and promises better things to come if we'll just read it and apply it to our lives. When Billy Graham preached that night in New York City, uh, he preached a message of comfort, a message of hope, a, a message of love for sinners who trust in Jesus. And that night changed Allie's life, and it changed my life, and it changed the lives of 9,400 other people that weekend who received the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And that's what the Bible does. We're not going to find comfort in the internet gurus of the New York Times or Oprah. Uh, we're only going to find that kind of comfort, that kind of power to change, that kind of salvation in the Word and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why we revere the book and we revere the God who wrote it. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your word. It is so amazing, the power that it has to, to save us and then to shape us into your image. And, and Lord, we just need to have our noses in it uh, so that we will continue to uh, live lives that are pleasing to you, Lord, that we'll continue to grow spiritually. And Lord, that we would be uh, people who others look at and say, I, I want some of what that person has. They, they seem to be happy and joyful no matter what's going on. And Lord, we can have that kind of joy when we receive the Lord Jesus as our Savior and when we trust your promises, uh, not only for eternity, Lord, but when we trust them for today. Lord, help us to be people of the book, a people who love your word and just ooze this grace, Lord, that pours off of every page in your Bible. We thank you, Lord. We love the Lord Jesus. We thank you for his sacrifice, and we pray in Christ's precious name. Amen.